Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 34, and we're going to take a close look at what was going on in the region bounded by the Orange River, the Kalahari Desert, and the Indian Ocean. This is where the Zulu emerged, but the story is not the simple tale most of us know about Shaka. As with other areas we've investigated, the popular narrative over time is not always an accurate reflection of real history. This will become very apparent, particularly as we unearth facts about the period between 1760 and 1800. It's fairly recently in historical research that we've come to understand what was going on. Earlier historians tended to pay very little attention to the decades before 1810 and the emergence of Shaka Zulu. Before then, the Zulu were a tiny clan washing around in a much bigger pool of tribes and clans. The period known as the Impetani or Dipetani, where the Zulu are blamed for southern Africa's destabilization, is now seen as hopelessly Zulu-centric. One of the brightest thinkers of this period who lives in Grahamstown, now Makanda, is Dr. Julian Cobbing, my lecturer in African history. His attempts at downplaying the Impetani have been rebuffed. However, his reasons for why the instability increased in this region has not been downplayed. An important feature we all agree on now is that the upheavals of the early 1800s were not all about Shaka. It was caused partly by the increasing interaction between European commercial and colonial expansion and indigenous communities, as well as the expansion of Zulu and Ndebele and other warlike people. Traders and settler numbers rose swiftly, as we're going to hear. Trading and raiding was always part of the southern African landscape, hundreds of years before Jan van Riebeek showed up in 1652. The processes of reorganization and expansion of increasingly centralized kingdoms can be tracked, though, to this time between 1760 and 1800. While these changes were taking place between the Drakensberg and Indian Ocean, they were also happening among the Tswana-speaking societies on the southeastern fringes of the Kalahari Desert. I've outlined the most important clans in the last podcast, but we need to remember them, the Bafokeng, Bahuruchi, Bakatla, Bakwena, Bangwaketsi, Baralong and Batlaping. Rainfall increase between 1760 and 1790 further accentuated these power networks, specifically when periods of drought also took place between these years of plenty. This drove kingdoms to seek resources from each other, and often this was done through the sharp end of a spear. The politics were also being shaped by the advance of the colonial frontiers and the effect of trading. The volume of trade accelerated specifically in the last quarter of the 18th century, and also by the 1760s, by the colonial expansion of the Trek Boers, which saw them across the Orange River already heading north. Trade from Delagoa Bay in the east also increased. The ivory traders and merchants exchanging manufactured goods from Europe, Asia and the Middle East for skins, raw materials such as copper and iron, ivory and gold. The Portuguese were also very active in southern Angola, driving the movement of goods all the way from the Atlantic to the Indian Oceans. The Botswana people were directly in line of these two entrepôts. The Cape frontier to the south saw settlements and raiding increasing, as we heard in the last two podcasts. As the Trek Boers expanded, more and more Khoi and San were forced out of their ancient dwelling places, and these refugees began to compete with the Tswana in the middle and lower Orange River area. The result was a breakdown of established pastoralist and hunting and gathering societies, and the emergence of more fluid, unstable groupings of Khoi, Khoi, San and Botswana, sometimes in a single group. They were often joined by runaway slaves and bandits of all shades of skin color, including white deserters from the VOC's army. The Cape Colony frontier became wilder than the Wild West, as you're going to hear. Some of these groups had acquired muskets and horses from one another, and the farmers who traded these sometimes. In other cases, the farmers' guns and horses were stolen. By the 1780s, these gangs, if you like, were making depredations on Tswana communities to the north. 
The Tswana had fairly stable political systems which were about to be tested to the extreme by their level of unlawfulness and disorder. By the early 19th century, these early bandit groups had become known as the Kora or Karana and were a major destabilizing force in the interior north of the Middle and Lower Orange. I'm going to introduce a few of these characters to you in future podcasts. Over the years, I've tried to stimulate some interest in a Netflix series about these people, as some of the stories are so incredible, they're virtually unbelievable, yet they're true. They're real history. If you think South Africa is lawless now, you're in for a shock when you hear just how the brigands of this time were operating in the wildest ways, out on the felt where there was no law except the law of the gun. Then, towards the 1790s, another group emerged from the Lower Orange River. These people came to be known as the Griqua and were seeking to escape from the disturbances that were being caused along the Lower Orange River by the expansion of Dutch stock farmers. The Griqua settled along a line of springs near the confluence of the Orange and Vaal rivers in territories occupied already by the Kora and the San, most of whom were forced to join the Griqua as clients. Like the Kora, the Griqua were equipped with guns and horses, and some took to raiding the local Tswana communities. But the most important Griqua leaders were not really interested in constant raiding, but in livestock farming, hunting, and trying to break into the established trade between the Tswana and the Cape. Some Griqua tried to farm by establishing crops along these springs. By 1801, Griqua leader Baran Barans took the momentous step of allowing missionaries to begin working amongst his followers. He believed this would improve his relationship with the settlers in the Cape. By the last quarter of the 18th century, groups of Amakosa were quitting the unstable regions of the frontier of the Eastern Cape and establishing themselves in the already volatile regions along the Middle Orange. These refugees formed more groups of armed bandits, with members of the Kora, San and Cape escaped slaves, and raided around the confluence of the Vaal in Orange. They avoided raiding the Griqua, however, and targeted the Batlaping, which threatened the trade between these people and the Tswana further north. It's against this background of expanding trade and raiding to the southeast and north and increasing political instability along the Orange River to the south that we must consider the history of the southern Tswana chieftains. Recorded history of this period is full of raiding and counter-raiding. Some of these fluid groups fragmented, others were strengthened in the growing clashes. By 1760, the dominant chieftain had been the Bahuruchi prior to its breakup into subgroupings later. Its centre of gravity at the time lay in the Upper Mariko region, which was good cattle country and also lay at an important trade intersection. That was where the goods passing east and west from Angola in the west and Delagoa Bay in the east passed through. It was their location that led directly to other Tswana chieftains eyeing the treasure to be earned by trade and trying to dislodge the Bahuruchi. The Bangoketsi, for example, who lived to the northwest on the fringes of the Kalahari Desert, they were the most predatory. To the southwest, the Batlaping were establishing greater control of the trade to the Cape, and to the east, in the region of what is now Pretoria, the Bahuruchi were facing competition from the expanding Maroteng and Pedi chieftains. The Maroteng and Pedi were based to the south of the Ulifants River. This Ulifants River, of course, is not in the Cape. It's the other Ulifants, which flows today through the Kruger Park and into Mozambique. It was now that large settlements grew rapidly on the felt. Some of the larger Tswana towns created quite a bit of debate in the 19th century about their exact origin, but archaeologists and historians now know the growth started in the mid-18th century due to the defensive needs which grew as the Griqua, Kora and others expanded into their territory. An increased threat tends to lead to a concentration of power when people are under pressure. The largest of the Tswana towns were estimated to house over 15,000 people, 
according to the first European visitors at the time. As we'll hear in future podcasts, the largest was Kadetsweni, the capital of a major section of the Bahuruchi, situated 25 kilometers northeast of what is now Zirast in northwest province. Jumping to 1821, its population was estimated by two visiting missionaries as numbering close to 20,000, which have made it much the same size as Cape Town at the time. We don't have a lot of evidence for what happened in the late 18th century to the territories just south and east of the Vaal River, but we know they were caught up in the intensified conflicts among the southern Botswana. By this time, the Bataung were beginning to attack and subjugate their neighbours in what is now northern and central Free State. Further to the east, a Tlokwa kingdom was growing in power by now, the last two decades of the 1700s. The leaders of the Tlokwa were ideally placed to control trade east and west across the Drakensberg escarpment. As these conflicts intensified, so too did the drive to concentrate power in larger groups. The successful ruler of the Bangwaketsi, known as Makaba for example, wielded considerably more power than his predecessors, and he was king of the Bangwaketsi between 1790 and 1824, a long run back in those times. Other chiefdoms split, such as the Quena, the Khatla, Poking and Bararong. As these groups changed, a marked social and political differentiation began to emerge. The populations of these political entities were divided into three tiers. At the top was the ruling family together with families who were closely associated with the chief's rise. In the middle were the various subordinate groups that recognized the authority of the chief and that sought land rights and to protect themselves and their livestock. At the bottom tier were low-status groups of clients, dependents and menials, as John Wright calls them in his chapter of the Cambridge History of South Africa. They usually had no livestock and were in a position that you and I would call servitude or even slavery. Membership of these chiefdoms was interchangeable at times with groups hiving off to establish their political independence or to join another chief, so they were not yet tightly bonded entities that we would identify by the 1820s, but composites where different groups identified themselves and were identified by others, usually of genealogical descent. So much for the region to the northwest, what of the east? In the territories east of the Drakensberg Mountains, patterns of social and political change can't be firmly traced before the mid-18th century. But we do have some speculation based on best guesses. Yes, not the most accurate way to tell history. However, there is enough information to figure out that, in the case of what is now the Zimbabwe Central Mozambique region, relatively large and centralized states had existed around Delagoa Bay for at least three or even four centuries before the late 1800s. Recorded oral history is hazy, but by the second half of the 18th century, chiefdoms in the east were beginning to acquire more power over their adherents and increased territory under their control. Clashes between these chiefdoms became more serious, more violent at this time. Exactly why is still a matter of historical research, but there are quite a few reasons we believe. Earlier, it was thought that the pressure on resources was growing as the human population naturally increased. For the southern Sutu, it was more like the changing climate both increasing and decreasing rainfall that pushed people into centralized points. A third was the introduction at this point of maize cultivation, which caused an increase in population. A fourth, trade. Ivory, cattle and slaves in particular. There was a spurt in trade around Delagoa Bay starting in the 1760s and actually accelerating by 1780. While ivory exports dropped in the 1790s, the elephants had been hunted out of entire regions by then, a large number of American whaling ships began to stop off at Delagoa Bay. American whalers used Delagoa Bay as a base of operations. 
The Tembe and Mobutu chiefdoms were drawn into increasing competition around Delagoa Bay and began to fight each other for control over these vital trade routes inland. Both chiefdoms grew larger by the year and began to wrest control from smaller clans on their periphery, such as the Abakwatlamini. At the same time, and around 300 kilometers northwest of the bay, the Maroteng chieftain was trading more widely and taking control of the routes more aggressively. They laid the foundations for what became the Pedi Kingdom, which continues to this day. The Maroteng faced the Nzunza Indebeli, Masamola, Makhkala, Pampakhleli, and Balubedu. Further north, around Sertpansburg, lay the expanding influence of a Venda kingdom. However, the Venda were the product of a quite separate set of political dynamics centered on the territories north of the Limpopo into what is now Zimbabwe. For southern Africa, these shifts of trade and the increasing reliance on maize and the erratic climate were going to produce substantial changes and quickly. To the south of Delagoa Bay, in the territory between the Pongola and Tugela rivers, the rulers of the Nkumalo and Nyambosi chieftains ruled the roost at this point. The Zulu were a tiny non-entity. The Nkumalo became the Ndwandwe kingdom, while the Nyambosi became the Mtetwa, and these two, the Mdwandwe and the Mtetwa, were going to be significant in our southern African story of power-mongering. There's oral and archaeological evidence that they were eyeing the ivory and cattle trade from Delagoa Bay, and their growth began to impact smaller tribes. These began their own process of centralization. A kind of social arms race, if you like, was happening. The Abakwat Lamini, north of the Pongolo, for example, and the smaller Amatlubi on the upper Mzanyati River began concentrating power. The Abakwat Kwabe, near the lower Chigela, were another. I grew up in a place called Inkwaleni, 60 kilometers inland on the Mflatuzi River, which flows into modern-day Richards Bay, and the Amatlubi were very much the ancestors of my friends in that valley. And their story is also the story of the Zulu. As the Amatwabe expanded, they pushed sections of the Abakwatele and the Amatuli chieftains southwards along the coast. The Amatuli then grew more powerful as they resisted the Tlabe and centralized their area of interest around the lower Mgani River and the Mkomazi Rivers. Simultaneously, the Amampondo, even further south, began firming up their somewhat loose structural kingdom. That's a lot of chiefdoms in a short space of time, but as you'll hear, this picture will clear up quite quickly because the two main units were the Ndwandwe and the Mtetwa. It was through clashes now long before the Zulu that the chiefs began to base their control over age sets of young men and to use them as soldiers in a consistent fashion. This was later to be known as the Zulu Amabuto system, but it predates the Zulu. While the term is referred to as regiments by some, that's misleading. They were actually socially structured groups brought together by chiefs for short periods to be taken through the rites of circumcision or to engage in services such as hunting. These Amabuta were thought of as very important in the delivery of ivory to Delagoa Bay by the late 18th century. From here, it would be only a small step for the chiefs to restructure the Amabuta into a system that was determined by tribute. It was in the form of animals, cattle mainly, but also labor power. Young men are the most disposable in any culture. Sorry, young men listening, but it's true. And the cohorts of these men, or Amabuta, began to transform. The first cultural reckoning for these kingdoms was the need to do away with circumcision, which is a luxury when you need many young men fighting for you at the same time. Previously, these rites, as they are now amongst the Kosa, served to mark a vital step in transitioning from boy to man. But by doing away with circumcision, the chiefs of the Ndwandwe and Mtetwa could control the young men for longer. They had to prove themselves by delivering services 
over a longer period of time to the chief. Young women, by the way, were also roped into this altered system. They were maintained in sections of chiefs' homesteads, which became known as Izugodlo, until they were married off to wealthy or politically important members of the chief's tribe. In return, the chief was paid a large bride wealth. Women were parceled along like cattle to some extent because they were exchanged in cattle. But the young men were also traded as goods with a long-term value. This all makes sense if you step back and try to understand what was going on. These large tribes used the Amabuto as fighting and policing units under control of the paramount chief. And of course, they still exist in South Africa today. Back in 1790, they were building homesteads for the chief, cultivating his fields and guarding his cattle. The chief, therefore, had taken over managing and controlling their labor mainly for the benefit of the ruling family and the aristocracy. What tends to happen in these situations worldwide is that the bigger a chiefdom becomes, the more those on the edges of power chafe at the control by the center. And this was what happened between 1790 and 1820 and beyond. The chiefs extracted a growing tribute in cattle and labor, and this increased tensions inside the chiefdom. In less politically centralized tribes and clans, fighting forces continued to be comprised of the Amabantla. This was not like the Amabuto. The Amabantla were groups of men of all ages drawn from the same local community and led by their own local leaders. But they had a big problem. In the business of raiding and fighting, the chiefs who had the Amabuto at their disposal had a major advantage over chiefs who did not. The Amabuto were age-based unified soldiers operating from the premise that they were to provide violence and other services in tightly controlled social and then military environments. The Amabantla were farmers and hunters who were sometimes called in to be soldiers. You can see the obvious difference between what we'd call the citizen force versus the permanent force. And so we must halt at this point, allowing our Amabuto to settle in for the night. Next episode, we'll dive more deeply into exactly what was going on amongst the Ndwandwe and Mtetwa. It's a fascinating story. Thanks to Francois at Iona.fm for all his help. You'll notice that some of the episodes feature adverts. I'm sorry to those who find it irritating, but no one is paying me to do this series and I have hosting, website and other costs. Nothing for Mahala, as we say in South Africa, which loosely translated means nothing for free. Thanks for your patience, dear listener. Please rate the podcast on your platform of choice or you can contact me through the website desmondlatham.com or direct message me on Twitter. My handle is at Des Latham. Until next, salagati. 